listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. It seems like the whole world's coming apart at the seams. And in times like this, when things are going bad, things are going difficult, things are going hard, you begin to read things that are a bit unsettling. You begin to see things on the internet, on television, hear them on the radio that are a little bit unsettling. I'll tell you who the awaited one is. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you want to find out about him, you don't need to watch some fancy floozy, ridiculous video presentation put out by a cult as if because world events are changing and things are terrible in the world that we live in that now we should get our spiritual houses in order. The more things change, the more they stay the same. You and I are going to see more bizarre, ridiculous things. I know some of you are probably holding your breath. Is Pastor Mike promoting this? Is this something that has my church been sold to some whack wingnut? Uh, what's going on here? A well-meaning brother by the name of Jonathan Kahn wrote two best-selling books. Maybe you've read them. One's called The Harbinger. The other one is called The Mystery of the Shemitah. And he means well. He really does. Tonight at sundown begins the season, the festival of Rosh Hashanah, the festival of trumpets, the feast of trumpets. And it's the end of the Shemitah, which is found in the Old Testament in Leviticus. And Jonathan Kahn has postulated that terrible things are going to coincide based on certain times in history where those have happened. What he doesn't really help us understand is that there have been other times when there hasn't been global catastrophe to coincide with the Shemitah. Last week, Jonathan Kahn had this to say, I believe that a great shaking is coming to America, a shaking that will involve the financial and economic realms, but also a shaking beyond and greater than these realms. As for the timing, God doesn't have to do things according to our expectations. Nothing has to happen in the autumn or at the appointed times of the Shemitah. What? At the same time, he could, and the appointed times could be significant. We must be ready either way. So which is it? Is it because the Shemitah is significant? Is it because of what you're saying and what you're postulating, or is it not? You know, when you read prophecy in the Old Testament, the prophet didn't say, God is going to possibly, maybe do this. I'm promising you a word from God that with absolute certainty there is a possibility that maybe it could be, potentially this might happen. When God speaks, God speaks, and God says, this is going to happen. There's no way of averting it. This is the outcome. And yet today, it seems like people are crawling out from the woodwork with the specific dates and times uh, this particular prophecy or that particular prophecy, this particular word or that particular word, when actually what we need to stand on is the word of God. In Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, it's very clear. Jesus said that things would go down with wars and rumors of wars, ethnic uprisings, moral collapse, the love of most growing cold. We don't need somebody else to come along and to add to that or subtract from that. You know, I was on Twitter. I do have a Twitter account. My Twitter account is at God Factor. And yesterday I was tweeting a little bit 
And these are some of the tweets that I tweeted and that I want you to pay attention to if you don't tweet. Talk of destruction based on the Shemitah, quote, maybe it will, maybe it won't coincide, is misguided. Judgment comes anytime rebellion reigns. I also tweeted, don't fear the times because of the Shemitah. Get your life surrendered to Jesus because he is worthy, period. Another one, which person are you? Jesus is coming, look busy. Or Jesus is worthy no matter when he returns. The second is real love for God. If you're quote unquote loving God because you fear the Shemitah's end, you don't really love God. Perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18. Jesus is coming, look busy, is more the evangelical mantra these days rather than Jesus no matter what. Many Christians fear these days because we're losing comfortable lives, not because we long to love and to honor Jesus. And finally, my final tweet, the sign of the end times is that we Christians are more concerned with losing our lifestyles than we are in losing our witness. Why is it that we're so fearful these days that this talk of the end times, which actually began on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes Joel chapter two and says, in the last days, your young men will see visions, your old men will have dreams. The last days began on the day of Pentecost and we've been living in them the whole world ever since. Now there is a sense in which we're further along as the time clock ticks, as the time passes. Of course we're further along in the prophetic timetable. But you would do well, I would do well, we'd all do well to find the right motivation, the mature motivation that's found in the word of God. For example, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, says this, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You know, one of the things that we try to do here through the preaching of God's word, whether it's on a large scale or on a small scale, no matter what ministry we do, what we try to do is to help you help each other be motivated by the most mature motivation possible. Whoever fears has not been made perfect because perfect love casts out fear. You know, you could, ladies, if you're married, you could get your husband to love you by threatening to poison his morning coffee. And so your husband starts treating you nicely because he's scared to death that he's going to die because you're going to poison his coffee. Or you tell your wife, you know what, if you don't make me a better dinner, I'm going to beat you. And so your wife starts preparing fancy dinners for you, candlelit and everything, because she's scared to death that you're going to beat her. That's not love. That's fear. Likewise, we could talk about the end times all we want and wrongly try to motivate people to look busy because Jesus is coming. To wrongly try to motivate people to change their behavior when there's nothing that's really changed in the heart. True change comes from the inside out. That's the way God does his work. Love God because he created you in his image and he wants to have you come into and grow in an abiding, growing relationship with him. The best way to develop a heart for God is to be in the word of God, the Bible. 
the best way to fall in love with God and to have all of those imperfect motivations for quote-unquote loving and quote-unquote serving and quote-unquote whatever it is with God, the best way to remedy all of that is to have our thinking transformed by the word of God, and that's where we turn today in Luke chapter 19. I don't have a fancy video presentation for you, but I do have the timeless, matchless word of God, which is still in fashion, always is, always will be. In our Father's word in Luke chapter 19, we'll get there in a moment, but in Luke chapter 18, see, 19 has its context. And in chapter 18 of Luke's gospel, there are four particular individuals or kinds of people here. One of them is the persistent widow, the person who's considered to be the outcast in the crowd, and she persists in calling out to God. Jesus gives a parable, and God ends up blessing that woman because of her persistence. The one that was the outcast, the one that was overlooked, the one that was marginalized, actually ends up being the one that got the attention of God. And then we have this titanic wrestling match between a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee is saying, I tithe 10% of everything that I own. I fast regularly. And God overlooks that self-righteous Pharisee, the equivalent of a pastor, or perhaps an elder, or a Sunday school teacher, or a church leader. Notice I included myself in that. And the one that God looks favorably upon actually ends up being the tax collector because it's a tax collector who does something that the Pharisee was not willing to do. And the tax collector calls out and says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's the one who gets the favor of God. And then Jesus talks about infants and children. And he makes it very clear. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The children are typically marginalized. You've got to grow up before you can do something significant for God. You've got to grow up to be someone who draws near to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, don't grow up. That's the problem. Too many people grow up too soon and want nothing to do with Jesus because we get too old to be any good for God. But it's the children that Jesus ends up elevating. The ones that society would marginalize, the attitude of a child. They end up being the ones that Jesus commends. And then finally, the blind man, the one who's marginalized, the outcast, actually ends up being the one who sees Jesus as he really is and is healed again and again and again and again, just in Luke chapter 18 and actually throughout the whole gospel and all of the gospels. We see Jesus calling the things that aren't as the things that are. The things that society overlooks, the things that society wants nothing to do with, the people that society says are useless, good for nothings, actually end up being the people that God reaches out to. The people who can see what the crowds can't see, the people who can hear what the masses can't hear, the people who actually end up being saved and rescued by Almighty God. So we've seen it again and again, just in our brief time right now, We've had a crash course in the kind of person that God reaches out to. And when we come to Luke chapter 19, we come to the big but. The big but in Luke chapter 19, the fly in the ointment here, verse 1, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho is a cultural center at this time. It's a business center. There are a lot of people from different places, a lot of business transactions taking, taking place, a lot of commerce taking place. And this instance takes place right here for good reason and for good purpose. He, Jesus, entered Jericho when he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief 
tax collector, and was rich. Now, the stage is set. Another tax collector, a toll taker. But he's not just any toll taker, not just any tax collector. He is the chief tax collector, and he's rich. Can you see the look of consternation on the crowd? Can you hear the grinding of their teeth as Luke sets this stage for us for another movement of God among the people apart from the crowd? There's a guy named Zacchaeus. A very wee man was he. Maybe you've heard that song in Sunday school. And he was a chief tax collector. There's no such thing as that title in this day, but the implication is that he was influential. There were subordinates under him. He was prominent, and he was a tax collector, which was somebody that the crowds would not have looked favorably upon. And to make matters worse, not only was he a chief tax collector, a prominent tax collector, somebody who wasn't looked favorably upon, but he was also rich. Now, if you're rich and you're a a tax collector, the, the question that's being begged here is, how the heck did Zacchaeus get all of his money? He probably wasn't operating too above board all of the time. He is a chief of sinners, a chief tax collector, and he's rich. And that's not all the problem that Zacchaeus has. Look at verse three. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And always remember that whenever there's a but, there's also an and when it comes to God. Zacchaeus' but is followed by this and. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And when they saw it, they all stood up and applauded. They all cheered. That would be the reversed standard version. No. When they saw it, they all grumbled, he is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the tale of a tiny toll taker. His name is Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus has a problem that people have postulated about. They still postulate about it today. There's discussion and debate about what it means for Zacchaeus to be small of stature. If you went to Sunday school for any length of time, you might be familiar with that song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And the implication that's been presented by one school of thought over here is that Zacchaeus was small in stature. That means that he was a tiny guy. And some of the Christian representations of the gospel, we've seen that. He tends to be a little roly-poly kind of a guy, a, maybe a, a heavy guy because we see a lot of joy that he seems to be jovial in this passage of scripture. So he's depicted as a short guy who's very jovial and very 
over-elated. And so people said that's the reason why he couldn't get through the crowd. He was short, he was tiny. But we all know that you don't have to be tall, you don't have to be an Amazon to enjoy a parade, do you? I mean, a parade's only for tall people? You can be a short person, a little person. I'm not that tall myself, and I've enjoyed parades. You don't have to be a tall person just to participate in a parade. But the implication here is that it, that was the reason why Zacchaeus had to get away from the crowd and go climb the sycamore tree so that he could see what he was unable to see because of his small stature, his height. So that's one school of thought over here that seems to be propagated, seems to be promoted by most of the English translations here. But Josephus and another guy named Plutarch and other scholars see the words that are used here that are used in other classical Greek, other Greek literature, and it doesn't usually apply to somebody's height it usually applies to somebody's age. Now, to add insult to injury, to rub salt in the wound, there's a chief tax collector who's very rich and also young. Now, none of us have been envious of a young person who was quite an entrepreneur, have we? This guy is a rich guy who maybe made his wealth in a dishonorable way. The suggestion here is that he's small of stature, that he's younger than a person typically would be to have this kind of money. And that's what it could mean, small of stature. That's what could be implied here. Well, you would say, well, then then why is he having difficulty getting through the crowd? Because that's a causative presentation here. The crowd who belittled Zacchaeus, who marginalized him, who is sneering at him, who recognizes that he's a quote-unquote sinner, who recognizes that he's richer than he should be through probably dishonest means, that he's a chief of the sinners, of the tax collectors, the crowd doesn't want to let him get through because he is an outcast. They are jealous of him because of his age, because of his wealth, because of his dishonesty. So you say to yourself, same thing I said to myself. Well, which is it? Is it because he's tiny or is it because he's youthful? Which one of those positions is right? Now, you should do what I do. You need to have scholarly resources that you go to, scholarly people that you go to to try to find out which camp you're going to land in when, you come, when it comes to the flip of a coin, which is it, short or youthful? So I did that. I researched. I went into great detail, and I consulted the expert of experts, the person whom I always consult when it comes to the flip of a coin, things like this. I consulted my wife, Janet. And Janet says that he was a wee little man. Zacchaeus was a short guy, a tiny toll taker. So that settles the issue, doesn't it? That settles the issue. He was tiny. It wasn't an age thing. Of course, I'm partially joking around, but not really. You know, it really does not matter whether he was small of stature because of his height or whether he was small of stature because of his age, the point is that Jesus reaches out to him when the crowd wanted nothing to do with him. See, there's this thing called the good news, which is the great news. It's called the gospel. And it's centered upon the person and works of Jesus Christ. 
not on anything that a chief tax collector who was wealthy and small of stature could have done for himself. In fact, there's nothing that anybody in that whole crowd would have been able to do for him apart from Jesus. And it seems like the whole crowd, here we are in chapter 19. This is not chapter one or chapter two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight. This is chapter 19 in Luke's gospel. We just looked briefly at Luke chapter 18 and we've seen repeatedly, time after time, not even all the events are recorded of the things that Jesus did in the gospels, but we've seen time and time again. We've heard it time and time again if we've grown up in the church for any length of time. The person that Jesus reaches out to, the person that reaches out to Jesus is the person who sees their need. The person who recognizes that they're helpless and hopeless apart from divine intervention. And this crowd following Jesus really doesn't know what it means to follow Jesus, but there's one guy in the midst of the crowd who sets himself apart from the crowd, Zacchaeus. A guy who the crowd would look at and who the crowd was looking at and sneering at and grinding their teeth and saying, get yourself away from Jesus. And it's a case of mass spiritual amnesia. These people are out of their minds. They've forgotten, even though they've followed him for a short period of time. We're in chapter 19 here. Don't they understand a thing yet about Jesus? Don't they understand anything yet about who Jesus came to save? Who Jesus came to rescue? The kind of person that Jesus reaches out and pulls out from the crowd? Did you see what is really being said here in this passage of scripture. Did you see this? Did you catch this in Luke chapter 19? Look, look for yourself in Luke chapter 19. In verse 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That is perhaps, probably, that's a verse worthy of committing to memory. That is the key verse in the Gospel of Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, when all is said and done, it's not Zacchaeus looking for Jesus. It's Jesus looking for Zacchaeus. And don't get me wrong, Zacchaeus is... Moving forward, he's reaching out to Jesus. Of course he is. But the only reason why Zacchaeus is reaching out for Jesus is because Jesus makes that first move. Jesus knew he would be passing by Zacchaeus, and it's Jesus who calls Zacchaeus out of the tree. This is the whole point and purpose of Jesus' ministry. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So you need to be, and I need to be. Churches need to be. This is the time when probably somebody listening by podcast, a pastor or a church leader, especially pays attention. You need to be a seeker-sensitive person. Your church needs to be a seeker-sensitive church. But the only problem with that is that often we get the seeker wrong. We think that we're the ones seeking God when actually it's God seeking us. You know where you would be? You know where I would be if it was up to us to seek God? we'd still be pigs wallowing in the mud, dead in our sins, 
not only living this life spiritually dead because death in the Bible is presented as separation from God, we would go into an eternity experiencing the second death, which is eternal separation from God, left to ourselves. We wouldn't seek God. We wouldn't pursue God. The whole point that's being presented here in this passage of Scripture is the whole point of what's being presented in the entirety of the Gospels. You didn't seek God, I didn't seek God, you wouldn't seek God, I wouldn't seek God. God came after you. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. While I was a sinner, Christ died for you. While Zacchaeus was robbing people and taking more money than he should have been taking, and engaging in underhanded business deals that put him financially ahead of other people. He actually wasn't going anywhere that God didn't see. God knew exactly what was going on with Zacchaeus. But there's a huge difference and a huge contrast that over here, the crowd following Jesus isn't really following him. But in the midst of that crowd, there is an outcast who recognizes his own need, sees something in Jesus, and is willing to act on it. He sees something in Jesus and is willing to act on it. When he moves forward, because God has made a move toward him, both of them together advance. God moves with those who are willing to move with him, God moves so that you can become a person who's willing to move. While the crowd might be following and looking like they're following, they appear to be following Jesus. They're not really following him. See, the gospel is this. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserves to be rescued by Almighty God. None of us. God knew that. God knows that. And that's why Jesus came, to seek and to save people who would not seek, who need salvation. You notice what happens here in verses four, five, and six. He ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Faith moves. Faith moves. Now you might be trusting God for whatever it might be. That's still movement. Even if you're not moving, if you're trusting God, you're moving. Biblical faith acts. It doesn't stay stagnant. It moves. It responds to the movement of God. Jesus is passing by and Zacchaeus sees his golden opportunity. I've got to see Jesus. I'm curious about Jesus. And there must have been something in Zacchaeus that longed for what ended up happening, longed for an invitation from Jesus. Today, you and I are hanging out together. Today, because you were willing to respond to my initiative, you saw me moving and chose to move with me, chose to move toward me, I've sought, I'm gonna save you. Faith moves, and God moves when he sees faith. Don't forget it. Faith moves, and God moves when he sees faith. God is the one who births faith. A life of faith is also a life that you and I would otherwise not live. Look at what happens here 
Look at what happens here right in verse seven. This is an amazing passage of scripture. In verse six, he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. And they sneer and they grind their teeth and here's their complaint. Hey, Jesus, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Don't they understand anything yet about the ministry of Jesus? He's always hanging out with the sinners. He's always going against the crowd. He's always extending mercy to the outcast, forgiveness to the sinner. There's nobody who sins so greatly that they can't be forgiven by Jesus in any of the gospels except those who reject him. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. The only reason why God would send you or me or anybody into an eternity separate from him, a second death, is when we reject Jesus as Savior and Master. But here we have a contrast. It's the chief rich tax collector who is either short or too young to be that rich and wealthy. He's the guy that gets blessed and he's the guy that's characterized by being joyful. You know, true biblical faith is filled with joy. You know, the people of Israel... They grumbled in the Old Testament and they wandered not for four years, but for 40 years. Grumbling is not a small thing when it comes to God. Grumbling is the opposite of what it means to have biblical faith. When you have biblical faith, when I have biblical faith, we are overflowing with joyfulness. Faith moves you forward, faith moves God, and faith overflows with joyfulness. The Israelites, for 40 years, they wandered into the wilderness. God said, that's it, for no other sin other than grumbling. This generation is not going into the promised land. And God waited till they all died off, until the new generation went in and received what he had promised. Don't you ever think that grumbling and faith can somehow mutually exist? And that's true in your own life. That's true in your family. And I'm going to raise the temperature in here a little bit. It's true in the body of Christ. You know, I've seen it. Any pastor worth his salt, any elder worth his salt, any deacon, anybody in church leadership has seen this. People in church, there are some people in church who love lemons and limes. I mean, they love them. You know that because they walk around looking like they've been sucking on lemons and limes. Spiritual amnesia, forgetting the depths of sin that they were in the depths of sin that they would be in if it wasn't for the one who came to seek and save them. God's rescued you, he's rescued me, he's rescued anybody who's experienced salvation from eternal separation from God in the life to come and right here and right now from a lifestyle of grumbling, 
from a lifetime of missing God? Do we understand that that's one of the key things The benefits of being saved, God saves us, not just in the life to come. He saves us right here and right now. You would spend the rest of your life on earth missing God repeatedly, and I would too. Grumbling when otherwise we'd be overflowing with joyful faith. One of the characteristics of a life of faith is a life that overflows with joyfulness because it's based on the person of Jesus Christ. And last time I checked, that's enough. Jesus is enough to get any lemon sucker to become a recovering lemon sucker. Give up the lemons and give in to Jesus. If you're walking by faith, if we're walking by faith, grumbling goes away and joy replaces the grumbling. The crowd is characterized by grumbling and they miss Jesus. But this one guy that the crowd didn't like very much, that as mere mortals we wouldn't like very much, he ends up being the one that Jesus reaches out to because he saw his need and because he saw something in Jesus that set him apart. Now, you notice there's an interesting thing that happens here in this dialogue. It's amazing. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. It's almost as if he might have heard the idea, the accusation that they called him a sinner. Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This goes above and beyond even what's taught in Leviticus in the Old Testament, the idea of restitution, which we don't understand today in the evangelical Christian community. We think that it's sufficient to simply confess our sins when we've robbed from somebody, to confess our sins when we've slandered against somebody, to confess our sin vertically to God when we've gossiped about somebody. You know, biblically in the Old Testament, and it carries over into the New Testament, there is this principle of making restitution. You know, it's very convenient. It's very easy for us to ask God for vertical forgiveness and not to go to the person or the people that we've offended and ask for horizontal forgiveness. You know how you can tell the degree to which somebody loves God by how they treat people. There is a biblical principle of making restitution, making right what you've made wrong. If you've sinned against somebody, you go to that person and you say, I am sorry. Six words that need to be in the English vocabulary. I am sorry. Please forgive me. We live such safe, cocoon-covered lives that we think that loving God is just a matter of privately in the privacy of our own houses, you're in our car when we're driving someplace, all we need to do is get right with God. You know, part of getting right with God is getting right with people. That's why we need to take to heart more seriously what God is saying to us through Zacchaeus. We don't know if he's Jewish or if he's a Gentile. We just know he's not liked by the people and he qualifies to be disqualified by God if we redefine God, if we refashion God in our own likeness, which is not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is the one who came to seek and to save the lost. You might know somebody who's rich, You don't know 
what they do with their money, but God does. This guy gave half of what he made, even if it was made through illegitimate, lacking of integrity ways. He gave half of what he gave. You know, the Pharisee in Luke 18 gave a tenth, tithed, fasted each week, wanted everybody to know what he did. You know, it could be that one of the reasons why somebody is rich because they know what to do with the money God gives them. Who knows, you might be richer than you currently are. If maybe, did it just get hot in here? The next time you're jealous about somebody who's got a lot of money, remember that you don't know what they do with their money. Remember that it's God who gave him that money and God is the one for whom, before whom they'll give an account. Take care of the money that God has given you. Use it in a way that honors God and leave the consequences to him. And remember that this principle of restitution is biblical, that the way we love God is manifest by the way we love people. And somehow we've divorced loving God from loving people, but God never did that. It wasn't his idea. Jesus' response to this guy is just absolutely stellar. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he's also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of Abraham, what an interesting choice of words. What an interesting title Jesus gives this guy, a son of Abraham. Where does that come from? Well, if we look at John chapter 8, verses 39 and 40, there's this dialogue that's taking place between Jesus and the heart of heart. People who are natural descendants of Abraham, they're having this discussion, dialogue back and forth. And the people don't like what Jesus has said because he's insulted them. He tells them that they're not sons of Abraham. Look with me at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Remember that, the works that Abraham did. We'll get there in a second. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. The question is, what did Abraham do? I know you were wondering, when is he going to get to the Old Testament? When is he going to pull the Old Testament into the New Testament? Because the best way to understand the New Testament is uh, by understanding the Old Testament. What is it that Abraham did that made Jesus commend Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham and reject the people in John chapter 8 who were physical descendants of Abraham? Well, if we go to Genesis chapter 15, we see in Genesis chapter 15, this is where the Abrahamic covenant is unfolding. We see it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. All of the Bible revolves around the Abrahamic covenant. You're going to see that in a way that you need to be reminded of it, that I need to be reminded of it again and again right now in just a moment. In Genesis chapter 15, Look what takes place here, verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, Lord, you promised me something back in Genesis chapter 12, that all the world will be blessed through me. 
that you would raise up a nation through my one particular offspring, and that the whole world will be blessed, not just through that nation, which became the nation of Israel, despite what we're hearing today in the news, but the whole world will be blessed through one particular seed, one particular offspring, one particular descendant of Abram, who became Abraham, and his name is Jesus. And so Abram is scratching his head and saying, when is the promise of God going to be fulfilled? When is God going to make good on what he promised to me years ago? And in verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. You know, Zacchaeus is said to be a son of Abraham even though he did nothing but believe in Jesus, see something in Jesus that the crowd was not willing to see. God took Abram outside and showed him the sky and said, look at all of those stars. That's how numerous your offspring will be. I'm promising you, I'm giving you my word. And when God makes a promise, God keeps that promise. When we get to Galatians chapter three in verse one, there are a group of people again. Spiritual amnesia has struck again. A group of people in a geographic area called Galatia forgot the great news, the gospel The idea that it's not what people do, it's not what you do, it's not what I do. Nothing we do can save us. The only thing that saves us is faith by grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Paul had to remind them in Galatians chapter three, verse one, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, it doesn't work that way. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit, God, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And that's what's being presented here in this story of Zacchaeus. That's what's being presented. In the midst of this crowd, is one guy who went against the crowd, who really saw Jesus for who he was, who was willing to act on the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who seeks him out, is able to save that guy, to rescue him from being a social outcast, to rescue him as being one that's unique among the people, just like he does with you and with me by providing salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
It's only those who have the faith of Abraham, not the crowd. Being in a church isn't going to save you. Never saved anybody. Being in a Christian family isn't going to save you. It never saved anybody. Being immersed in water, according to your will or against it, being sprinkled with water is not going to change you. Going through catechism, going to Sunday school, becoming a pastor or an elder or a deacon or serving in the church, none of that stuff is going to save you or rescue you. All it comes down to is to have faith. The faith of Abraham who believed God and his belief was all that was necessary. It was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't matter what you've done, how often you've done it. There is no sin except the sin of faithlessness in the work and the person of Jesus Christ that is too big to keep you from being saved, to keep you from experiencing the forgiveness of God. The story of the gospel as made clear through the story of Zacchaeus is that God calls the things that are not the things that are. The gospel, the good news, the great news that we all tend to forget is that you're a sinner apart from the grace of God. I am a sinner, apart from the grace of God. God doesn't call us because we're rich. He doesn't call us just because we're poor. He doesn't call us for any other reason other than he seeks us. He calls us, he saves us. He saves us simply because of saving faith. That's what makes you a child of Abraham. That's what makes me a child of Abraham. That's what made Zacchaeus a child of Abraham while the crowd was hanging with Jesus and missing him nonetheless. There was one guy who had been paying attention. Here we are in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke and like those people, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Oh, how we forget what the gospel is. Oh, how we forget the person and the work upon whom and in whom the gospel is said to be great news. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, become sin so that you, a rich chief tax collector who's too short or too young, could become the righteousness of God. That, my friends, is the story of Zacchaeus. That, my friends, is the story of the gospel. And if anybody gives you something different, you run for the hills. The good news, which is the great news, is that you, even you, are not a hopeless case when it comes to our helpful God, Jesus. been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.